Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello, and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. In the early hours of Sunday, the 29th of May, Legendary jockey Lester Piggott passed away, aged 86, in Switzerland. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Sean McGee, eminent racing historian and author of Lester's Derbies, who interviewed Lester on many occasions during his career. Welcome back to the podcast, Sean. Very sad news for the sport of horse racing and for the world of sport. Uh, Yes, thank you. Great to be back with you. I was very sad to hear of Lester's parting. We we got on so well for so so many years. Uh, it wasn't always easy, but um, we we had a lot of fun as well as uh, business arrangements. So uh, yeah, still sad, and likely to remain so for good. He was a mon- extraordinary man. He, in some ways, he was the most one of the most unusual people I'd ever met, and uh, you just had to live with that. Um, side of him that you're never quite quite sure when you're going to see him whether you're going to get the, the ultra taciturn or the jokey or the um uh, storyteller all sorts of things and and they came came together in this uh, extraordinary fellow plus of course he had sublime skills supreme skills as a jockey we miss seeing him so many ways but Having said which, since the weekend when we heard about this, then the, the level of coverage in the press and so on has been tremendous. And uh, however many more times we can never have enough of a Royal Academy winning the Breeders' Cup mile in 1990. And uh, it, it, so there's, there's been an interesting side to this. Let's put it like that. Well, thanks for that introduction. What made him such a great jockey? Well, I, I think it, he certainly was a great jockey. He's the only one that comes remotely close, really, is Gordon Richards. And it's interesting, of course, Gordon Richards had a very um, 
very loose sort of style and a very upright sort of style, whereas Leicester had had this um, the opposite really. He was often asked because of his the way he held himself when when at the gallop. It's often been said to him, was said to him, well, why do you stick your bottom in the air? And he said, well, I've got to put it somewhere. That is, I won't, I won't try to do an impression of uh, Lester every time I quote him. But uh, and I read somewhere the other day one of these pieces about him. He had a remarkable rapport with horses. And this person, I can't remember who it was now, was writing the other day and said that he horses really responded to him because he was very quiet. He was always quiet. I mean, quiet in all sorts of ways. And the horse, like horses, liked the quiet of him. And I don't know whether this can be proved, but it's an interesting notion. And the fact is that, with all his uh, other traits, this ability to get into the brain, if you like, the mind, the spirit, really, uh, of individual horses, was just unrivaled. And uh, very, very unusual. In, in, you know, there are great jockeys, and then there's Leicester. He's, for me, he's completely out on his own as the, the best. He, of course, he wasn't the actual statistical leader of jockeys, uh, Gordon Richards, and then Pat Eddery, and then Leicester. But uh, as a man who, who really had had horses really respond to him, I think he was unparalleled. I also spoke to Leicester's lifelong friend, Frank Conlon, head man and work rider at Henry Cecil's Warren Place Stables. I asked Frank what made Leicester such a great jockey and what he was like to work with at Warren Place in the early 1980s. Everything. His balance, his strength, mainly his brain. He was a fortnight in front of everybody else, literally. He knew everything, he knew every horse in the race before he rode against them. And it was just his, his sheer ability, took chances where other people wouldn't. And he'd go through gaps that weren't even there, bigger, and he, he got into a lot of trouble. But he'd never, it always looked dangerous, but it never was. He used to know when to go, and when not to go. You knew you'd always got him on your side, especially when he was in a race, you know. You'd sooner have him riding for you than against you. That was the simple thing about it. And very clever, and when he come back, he could always tell you everything about the order, you know. Sometimes you think Leicester had won so, so easy, just coasting along, and he would say to me, actually, there was nothing left in the tank. That was it. You know, you think he could have gone on farther, but he'd just say he couldn't. And he always told the truth, always. You know, he was just—he's just a genius to, to to work with completely, absolutely. Never took any orders. If Henry asked him to lead, he'd say, "You lead off it second." <laughs> he used to—he used to want to do his own thing, and that was it. But, but Henry used to accept it. You know, he don't tell me how to train. I even tell him how to ride. It's as simple as that, you know. So that's the lesson. But to have him round, and you knew you got him on your side, was always, it's always. Ace, absolutely genius. Well, we're going to talk separately about his derbies, but his career was, well, the career longevity is 
is in well amazing to think that he rode his first winner at the age of 12 he was still racing at the age of 59 and winning the derby in four different decades i always think the 2000 guineas record of winning that in five different decades it, it's just unbelievable really yeah it's interesting of course when so it's starting at 12, which is quite extraordinary. And of course, it couldn't happen nowadays. There are regulations to stop uh, stop that sort of uh, long gap. And, uh, youth, the youth, the infancy, if you like, of the would-be jockeys. But, um, and the other, another interesting thing, which is not appreciated, is that having got that first winner in August uh, 1948 on the chase, it's took him quite a long time to get his next couple of winners um, because of course he was still at school though very reluctantly didn't have much time for school but it it wasn't a meteoric you know, fame it was it was more gradual than some people remember the other interesting thing which not a lot of people notice is that the day of his first winner as i just said august um 1948 was the same day that Don Bradman, the great Australian cricketer, played his last day's cricket, uh, test cricket that is, and it was it was like the obvious sort of parallel it is the old uh, hero leaving the stage just as the new one comes along from the other side and that sort of thing. So that was interesting, uh, and. The other aspect of, the, of Leicester in this, this context, Peter O'Sullivan, who was his great mate, the commentator, he wrote a piece about Leicester in which he said that he, he Leicester, had been deprived of his childhood. And because by the time he was 12, he was riding, regularly riding. Uh, and that was interesting as well as, you know, whether he was very internal, Leicester was very internalised sort of that's the right word sort of person and therefore he would he would he was happy with his own company he, he preferred his own company to any the company of pretty well anybody else just my theory i've not heard that fact about don brabham but that really is two of the most iconic sportsmen of the mm. 20th century connected in that way and, and especially for this podcast as we uh, focus on cricket and horse racing but talking about um, talking I'm now going to ask an interviewer uh, about what it was like to interview Lester Piggott uh, can you remember the first time you interviewed him and how did that come about um, as I remember I was put on to Lester or rather he was put on to me um, because he had written an autobiography for quite a lot of money the publisher had paid in advance and what the, the, they, they drafted a um, version of this and it completely lacked emotion. It didn't have, hardly had any sort of feeling in it at all. It was just, then I wrote so-and-so and then I wrote Karotza and then I wrote blah, blah, blah. And um, the publisher was very unhappy about this and, and said to Lester he had to beef it up a bit or, or he... Um, They'd, they'd remove themselves from the agreement. And Lester said to Peter O'Sullivan, well, what, what am I going to do? And Mo Sullivan, who I worked on a couple of book projects with, suggested that he get in touch with me 
in Leicester. So I went up to Newmarket and uh, had one of these, the first of many very sort of minimal, sort of minimal uh, conversations. And we we hadn't really got an awful long way. And I said to him, let's let's just try and try an experiment of go, me ghosting you. And uh, let's talk about Nijinsky. And he he lit a cigar and uh, sipped a glass of champagne, which was his basic diet, as you will remember. And um, he said he said, well, it was impossible to not to fall in love with Nijinsky the second you saw him. I thought this was a pretty good line to start with from somebody who was, uh, who was famous for being um, non-communicative. And it, so we talked completely off the cuff about Nijinsky. And I thought, no, there's something here because he's, um, there, he, does, he does have a, an emotional side. He just doesn't show it very often. And so we agreed um, that I would help him by going back to the text, the non-emotional text, and um, help out. And that's what, over a period of some months, that's what we did. And then gradually, he, he's not an easy person to, to be trustful. Uh, he, I, mean, he, I mean, he didn't trust people in the way that other people might. And it, so it took a while for me to become for he, him to become relaxed in my uh, company if you like and then, then he, he stopped being um, suspicious of me but anyway they published the book eventually and uh, all was well and I and then uh, then I had the idea for a book about um, Lester's derbies which became Lester's derbies and the point being that uh, I would have one level of writing if you like it would be me writing about the facts and sort of documents where and him giving his version of things and so that was quite fun and we just got more and more relaxed i think is probably the word sometimes he would he would occasionally if he was being in doing a promotional video or something like that he would often uh, specifically asked for me to be the questioner because he knew exactly what he was going to get from me which is the same same level of question as i was doing the last time i mean there was the business of course of the speech impediment and the deafness which were which were a problem in, in some ways occasionally he would say something which you just couldn't understand and you say i would say just try and try again. Some people were, other people were fairly wary of him because you would finish an interview with Lester and you'd look at your notebook and he, it would appear there's nothing that would stick. And it was strange, I think, because uh, there was nobody like him. And that sort of, you know, the, the muttering, uh, murmuring sort of accent he could turn on. But we got, as I say, over a period of years, we got um, much more relaxed and it, and it became much easier for me to hear what he was saying and so forth. So, um, you know, we had, we had a special relationship in that sense. But I, you know, I heard myself, you interviewed him for uh, Crepello's 60th anniversary win of the 
2000 guineas. That was at the National Horse Racing Museum when Julie Cecil was there that evening as well. That's right. That was, uh, uh, and then more recently he did, I did a virtual sort of in, interview with him for, again, for the Jockey Club, for a promotional thing. And um, he's, he's even more cack-handed technologically than I am, I think, because he would be, um, he, was, he was sort of halfway on the screen. And God knows where the other half of him had gone. And, but he was fine. Once he got in the right position, he was fine because he knew, as I say, he knew what the questions were going to be. And uh, he knew what his answers were going to be. So it was just a matter of half an hour, 20 minutes. Leicester's Derby's came out 50 years after Never Say Dies. That was his first victory in 1954. The book came out in 2004. What uh, did he consider his best Derby winner? Well, there's the sort of blanket line about there all, all the nine winners were great on the day, which is a sort of giveaway. I mean, I th- it was, it's between Nijinsky and Sir Ivor, and sometimes he would say uh, one and sometimes he would say another. But the Sir I- to me, the Sir Ivor was the just astonishing turn of footy show. That horse, and although uh, Nijinsky was a great horse for sure, it wasn't sort of quite as spectacular. The thing about Sir Ivor, of course, he was who was considered a doubtful stayer over a mile and a half. He just wait, Lester waited, 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 and um, come the moment he just whooshed by from over uh, Connaught. I've always thought the um, the minstrels was remarkable because just the way he he got up um, very close home, beat Hotgrove and Neck, uh, and then of course there was Roberto, who after all sorts of shenanigans before the race about who was going to ride what horse, uh, Leicester got Roberto home by a short head, which was the narrowest margin uh, of any of his nine winners. Derby winners, they were all different. It was like a sort of um, masterclass. If you if you look at them now, there are plenty of videos available about the nine of the nine. Um, yeah, nine, nine winners out of thirty six. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That's nice round numbers. So he first rode in the race in nineteen fifty one, last time in nineteen ninety four, and yeah. as we spoke before. In 1953, he rode a horse called Prince Charlemagne, who the following March, the same year as, as his derby win on Never Say Die, won the Triumph Hurdle at Hurst Park. Not many jockeys can do that. No, no. And again, thinking of um, strike rates, his strike rate, oh, I think he had, he had 20 winners, didn't he, over hurdles, out of something like 54 um 50 something and he, he was mainly did it in fact he did it till up to 1959 i think um mainly to keep weight down of course but he was also when he could arrange it he loved going abroad to far east um all sorts of other places he, he loved traveling and uh 
they loved him, of course. Well, it was fairly unusual for a jockey to go to Hong Kong or whatever, wherever, uh, in the way that it is now. It's simple now. In those days, he, he, the first country he ever rode abroad was Greece, interestingly enough. I, I don't know how he arranged this, but, um, but the, it became part of the, the figure's psyche that he would, he would love going overseas. And, and so therefore it was sort of fitting that his greatest moment, individual moment in the Royal Academy was in the USA. Yeah, and that's a, a day that you were, you were there at Belmont Park to watch the Breeders' Cup Mile in 1990 when he won this extraordinary race which has been played many times over the last week. Uh, you weren't working there. You were there as a spectator. Yeah, I was, um, I think I was working in publishing then, but I, it looked so good on paper that, because made the day dure, you'll remember, uh, brilliant sprinter was running Royal Academy, <clears throat> some very good um, American trained horses. And I thought, and in those days, you could get um, and standby tickets on planes fairly easily. And so I just decided to go out um, and I could stay with friends in Manhattan. So I could, uh, it, it just felt to me as if it was going to be special. It was much more special than I, than I expected it to be because of figure. And he was... He was noticeably much more happy. Uh, he, he gave quite a long, quite long interviews afterwards, including one to, with Bruff Scott, for Channel Four Racing, uh, and uh, in which he famous, he Lester famously said, "You never forget." It's a good line, you know. You've been through all this and been in prison and so on. Um, you never forget. That's a good line. For, for a taciturn man, that's a pretty good line. And it was a matter of days since he came back riding. It was 12 days, I think. He, was, he came back on the Monday and uh, Belmont Park was on the Saturday. And if you, again, as you say, it's been played a lot for his recent days. But he, he, he did it. He slipped coming round the final bend. And he was... He used to say it felt like that he, he, Royal Academy, had put his foot in the hole. Anyway, so he was sort of knocked back a bit and then had to make it up. And they beat that horse. It's all Greek to me. And everybody was just amazed. And I, I, I can't put it simpler than that, really. I mean, it was just, just extraordinary. It was his age. There was his lack of uh, his ring rustiness, you might say. Um, and look what happened, quite, quite extraordinary. But and it wasn't right. extraordinary without anybody else, but it's almost, it's almost routine with figure. And Royal Academy was a son of Nijinsky as well, which adds more to the yeah. West Boys' own story of this. Yes, and um, he, they weren't sure whether he would stay because he was a very good sprinter, Royal Academy. Won the July Cup, six furlongs. Um, so it, it, the way he finished, and and Lester sort of taking a cheeky look over his shoulder to check uh, how far ahead he was. He wasn't very far ahead, but he won. 
and um, just amazing. And of course, the comeback then extended further because in 1992, he won the 2000 Guineas on Rodrigo de Triano, his 30th classic. Uh, also won yeah. the Judmont, Judmont uh, International that year and the Champion Stakes on, on the same horse. I think I think they Rodrigo de Triano hasn't gotten the credit he deserved. I mean, he was a very well when the conditions were right. He was a very very good horse. And Lester always said, if he was being interviewed, Lester always said that uh, he, he was much better than people. Rodrigo was much better than people remember. And that was the 30th classic, yes, in 1992. Yeah. So that was um, one of the high points. He also had low points because he had he took a terrible fall in the US during during his second coming, as it were. I don't think anybody thought he was as good, quite as good as he was when he and he retired the first time, but it was still an amazing story. And the fact that he could win at the highest level, of course, was important. He wasn't just messing around, messing about around small tracks. He was, he was um, winning, competing in and winning the best uh, races there were. He um, ran in the 1992 Derby, and interestingly, he. he Piggott hardly put him in the race at all because he knew instantly, pretty well instantly, that the um, the course wouldn't suit Rodrigo, and he just he just let him love along in his own time. He was way I can't remember he was actually last, but he was way down, and that reminded me of his great you know, people. This time of year, people always ask, "What what does it take?" Ask Lester, "What does it take to be uh, to win a Derby?" And the word he always used was balance, and that was interesting. That you know that uh, it's not you don't you don't want a big horse because the balance of the horse coming down uh, Tattenham Hill, Tattenham Corner, you so easily get unbalanced, and then your chances are gone. And uh, that was that was pretty well all his. Um, Winners, I think, were, were quite close, close up coming into Tatton Corner, you know, and he knew that this, this is where you had to be. Well, this year's Platinum Jubilee Derby is being run in, in his memory. And back in 1979, he rode for the Queen, he rode Milford in the Derby. Yes, that was, a, that was remarkable because... Uh, the stable jockey with Dick Hearn was uh, Willie Carson. And he had a choice between Troy and his second string, but still a pretty good horse, was Milford. And after a lot of speculation, it ended up with uh, Lester riding Milford. And Milford was owned by the Queen. And this is, you, you, could, you couldn't do better for a sort of housewife's choice sort of story but he, he didn't he, I think he was sort of mid-division never looked like winning whereas uh, Troy as you'll remember with this sort of barnstorming performance under Willie Carson but it was it was the the elements that came together in Milford which was interesting because you've got you've got the Piggott connection and you've got the Royal connection and he his first classic 
no, not the first classic, her first classic, the Queen's first classic, was Carozza and the 57 Oaks, who was written by... Lester Piggott. Yeah. So there's all those, all sorts of connections. And this is why it's sort of repeating with uh, Milford, but it was it was not to be. And then, of course, there was more, much more recently, there was Carlton House in the Derby, finished third in the Royal Colours, not written by Lester. He retired yet again by then. As Ryan Moore. Yeah, that's right. And a shoe came off in the final turn, which didn't help. Any final thoughts then about your great friend, Lester Piggott? Well, the main one is just, just, just gratitude, my gratitude for, for knowing him. I know it sounds sort of cliche in some ways, but he was such a remarkable man. He was remarkable in the saddle and not in the saddle. And when he was on form, he, he could be the most delightful company and funny and so on. And when he's not in, in the good frame of mind, he could be quite helpful, <laughs> put it like that. Um, and I, I know I'd just be, I'd just be happy to have known him just, and, and really sad for his uh, departure. And I think younger listeners won't realise how big a star jockeys like Lester Piggott, in, in, Lester in particular, at that time were, because horse racing was so much more in the news. The Derby was such a big event in the 50s, 60s, 70s, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. And, and racing had a much, much higher profile then than it does now. And 60s and 70s. And if he would he would be a real um, superstar, you know. He was he would you you would go to a race meeting in, when you when I was little anyway, um, and uh, in order to see this man in action, he was extraordinary. And he had it's, it's partly the he had the whole panoply of, of uh, riding races. You know, he could he could win by short head and he could win by 15 lengths and and they were you you, you which whichever of those that it was they were worth watching he was just special that's the answer he's special and will remain special well that's a very good way to end this podcast uh to talk about the late, great Lester Piggott. And thank you very much for sharing your memories of uh, someone you got to know well over many years. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Pad and Pad. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review. Sports Social Podcast Network. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. 
Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.